Welcome to the Trinity Western Chapel Podcast. As a vibrant part of life at Trinity Western University, Chapel creates opportunities for us to engage with God's story of redemption in Jesus Christ through His Word, prayer, and worship. We're glad you're listening and hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. So yeah, my name is Kevin Scott. I am a professor in the Department of Media and Communication, and I also started the game development program here at TWU. And since you are a captive audience this morning, uh, I, may I just say that you all look particularly attractive today. And uh, if any of you are interested in making video games for fun and profit, or making films or learning how to speak and write effectively, uh, I will be sticking around afterwards for you to chat with me. But that is uh, not our main purpose in talking this morning. Uh, we are really here to continue the series that's been going on all semester about the book of Esther. Uh, and it has fallen to me to talk with you about Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to start off by reading that now. So on the 13th day of the, uh, sorry, <laughs> of the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews had the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because all the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshan, Datha, Dalphin, Asphatha, Paratha, Adalia, Ariditha, Parmashta, Arizai, Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So, there are a lot of different ways to read and understand this story. There are also, by the way, a lot of different ways of pronouncing the names of the sons of Haman. Uh, I struggled with that a little bit. Um, the take I want to focus on with you today is the sudden turn to joy that we see in this story. Now, this may not seem like the immediately obviously obvious take here because it's a pretty bloody story. So I think before we go any further, I think we have to deal at least a little bit with the elephant in the room, which is that this story involves a lot of killing. Um, this is not unique to Esther, of course, the book of Esther. There are lots of stories of the people of God dealing in what today we would call genocide. Um, this ain't genocide in this particular story. Maybe think of it as something more akin to gang warfare. Uh, either way, this is a little tricky for people of the cross, people who follow Jesus. Uh, maybe this has never troubled you before. Uh, if you've grown up in the church like I did, uh, you get used to hearing Old Testament stories of slaughter and maybe don't stop to think about how disturbing it is. But it is. Uh, and I know this may be a bit shocking of a thing to say, but killing people is wrong. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm not a pacifist in the absolute sense, uh, but the message of Jesus certainly isn't go forth to all nations making disciples of all people and terminate people who get in your way. 
Um, this isn't something I really want to focus on today, and I don't propose to settle this. I just want to point out that we should be uncomfortable with the killing. We should. But if anyone had a justification for violence, it would be the people of Israel in the situation described in the book of Esther here. The petulant Haman had marked them out for extermination. The orders had gone out. Uh, and the people of Israel were looking at being slaughtered en masse. This is as dark as it gets. Haman's plan is genocide. We're facing that moment in the movie or the novel where the protagonist is facing overwhelming odds and there doesn't look like there's going to be a way out. And then, against all rational thinking, the tables turn, as the passage says. There is a reverse. The light breaks through the darkness. Hope triumphs. In a moment of despair, the oppressed rise up and defeat their oppressors. This is uh, Luke blowing up the Death Star. This is Harry Potter apparently coming back from life to duel Voldemort. This is P.T. Barnum's circus rising from the ashes. This is Elsa's love melting a frozen heart. Sorry if any of those are spoilers. <clears throat> um, so there is a word for this. You catastrophe. That's a fun word. Um, it's a term invented by J.R.R. Tolkien, who in addition to writing The Lord of the Rings was a professor of language and literature. Now you should know that all academics have a license to make up new words. I'm sure your professors have done that. But Tolkien is more qualified than most as a linguist. So what does he mean by that? Well, a catastrophe, according to Tolkien, is the opposite of what we would normally call a catastrophe. A catastrophe is a sudden and massive tragedy, right? I mean, when we say that dinner with my girlfriend's parents was a catastrophe, we don't mean things were, you know, okay, I guess. Uh, the you catastrophe, according, according to Tolkien, is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. Read that again. A you catastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. It is the moment when all things that were going wrong are suddenly going right. Frodo is in the heart of darkness, struggling to destroy the ring, and he can't do it. Yet in a fit of greed, Gollum struggles for possession for his precious and bites off Frodo's finger, and while dancing in celebration, he accidentally falls into the volcano. Only moments before, the quest seemed to be at an ignominious end, right? All of the free peoples of the world were at risk of death and slavery. And now suddenly, beyond hope, a solution appears, and all is set right, and evil is vanquished. It is joy unlooked for. But I should note that a catastrophe is not just any old happy ending, right? Uh, Dora the Explorer making it past the Windy Canyon and escaping the clutches of Swiper the Fox so she can bring her cupcakes to Abuela's house is not, in my professional opinion, catastrophe. And there's nothing against Dora. I'm happy she made it. 
Um, but the ending was never in doubt. It was a cheap victory, a fairly cheap victory. And that's part of the appeal of children's stories, right? Goodnight Moon uh, uh, offers uh, a happy ending, but it's not a particularly epic feat to get a little kid to fall asleep in bed. <laughs> Actually, that may not be the best example. Kids can be really difficult sometimes. So anyways, you get the point, right? Tolkien basically says that you catastrophe has to cost something. Unless the characters suffer, unless the danger feels real, unless the straits are truly dire, when the happy turn comes, it will ring hollow. Right? It won't feel compelling. It won't feel real. It won't move us to tears or excite us or inspire us. And I think that has something to do with the nature of stories. Good stories are never just stories. <laughs> we do often tell ourselves that, something like that, right? It's not real, it's just a story. It's one of my favorite, my favorite comics. Don't worry, Jimmy, they're just actors and that's not real ketchup, right? Um, uh, it's not real, it's just a story, right? Demigorgons are not real, they're just in a story. Uh, that castle is only a model, right? Um, you can't really ride dragons or step through the wardrobe door into a snowy for forest. Except, that's not quite right. It's never just a story. It's never just a story. Stories are, are profoundly dangerous things. They're the connective tissue of our world. We use stories all the time without ever even knowing it. If you think about your life in general, it's a series of only somewhat connected events and experiences that we have. We use stories to put things together. Stories are what make sense of those disconnected events. We use stories to answer the question of who did what to whom for what reason, right? I got up this morning. I had some breakfast. I brushed my teeth, and then I realized my shirt was on backwards. It's a kind of a dumb story, but it's a story. It takes those things and it puts it together, right? Stories connect events to other events. They make our world coherent. A story is never just a story. So the kinds of stories that we tell, the kind that we read, the kind that we watch matter. They matter a lot. And we know that stories that ring true are the ones that are most powerful. The stories that ring true are the ones that are most powerful. And by ring true, I don't mean that there's no magic. I don't mean that there's, you know, no talking unicorns or hidden civilizations of people made out of jello. Something rings true if it connects with our human experience, right? If it is if it has relatable characters, if the struggles and the dangers feel convincing, then it rings true to us, whether or not there's magic or weird technology or aliens or whatever. And this gets to the heart of why you catastrophe matters. Not every story recognizes the truth of our, our condition, right? Some stories offer us false comfort by telling us that everything is okay when everything is not okay, 
right? Some stories wallow in despair and tell us that nothing can ever be better again. A story with a true you catastrophe recognizes that we live in a dark world that is full of pain, that is full of suffering, that is full of messed up stuff, but it also says that there is hope. It also says that we will suffer, but that is not the end of the story. And that is why the story of Esther is God's story, even if God is never named, as you've heard a dozen times this semester already. We live in a world full of injustice. So it rings true that the people of God might be threatened with extinction. And amazingly, one woman is put in place to turn the tide, but her chances of success are not great. Women are deeply disempowered in her world, and she's fighting a veteran of palace politics. And again, this rings true, does it not? And then the unexpected turn to joy. She turns the fate of her people in a new direction. They are saved. The U catastrophe occurs. This is the story that is just a small foretaste of the bigger story that God has written in our world. His good creation has been spoiled by sin. His children are living in suffering and darkness of all kinds. The sin of abuse, the sin of hatred, the sin of oppression, the sin of selfishness. And this stuff occurs at the levels of government and cultures overall, giant corporations, and also in the intimate conversations and decisions that happen in the bedroom and in the kitchen. It's everywhere, and it seems overwhelming, and it seems unavoidable, and it seems undefeatable. What can we do about sexual abuse? What can we do about racism? What can we do about environmental destruction? What can we do about crushing, grinding poverty? But praise God, he is breaking into this world. From a little nothing town, of a little nothing tribe, of a land conquered by a superpower of its day, God raises a hero. This is a hero who is everything his own people do not expect a hero to be. And yet he turns the tide. God has broken through. The forces of evil and hurt, strong as they still are, have been put on notice. They will eventually lose. I think this is especially appropriate at this time of year for students and also for professors. Many of you feel weighed down by projects and papers and fear the looming menace of exams. These are dark times, my friends. Um, I do make light of it, but we do often feel overwhelmed in our day-to-day -day life, don't we? Do we not feel oppressed by the press of everyday life and looming deadlines and things like that? And on a larger scale, we live in pretty dark times. Pandemic polarization, environmental destruction that resulted in my basement being flooded this week or last week. The stories that our culture tells have often given up hope. And because 
And, and, and because of that, there is this feeling that there is no rescue, that we're living in a dystopian young adult novel. <clears throat> but in the story of Jesus, there is always hope. And because of that hope, we must live differently. We will face struggles. There's no question about that. The brokenness is real. But God always promises his people he will be with them to the end of time and then beyond that. So, look for those stories today. Look for those stories this week. Look for those stories the rest of this month. Look for stories of you catastrophe that give you a little taste of the great you catastrophe. Make those stories, either as creative artists or in the way that you live your everyday life and the kinds of relationships and conversations that you have with people. So as you go forth from here, may God surprise you, as he surprised the people of Israel so long ago, with a sudden happy turn that reminds you of the gift of Jesus and the change that makes in all our lives. Let me pray for you. Holy God, we know that you hold all things in your hands. And we know, Lord, that we live in a difficult world. And sometimes our challenges are small, but they're still very real. And sometimes, Lord, they feel overwhelming. And the challenges that our culture faces, that our country faces, that our community faces right now, can seem overwhelming. And we think especially of those affected by the flooding uh, and by those who've lost their livelihood. And we think of those here on this campus who are struggling with so many challenges. But we know, Lord, that you have provided the happy turn, that in the person of Jesus, you have broken through, not the power of sin and the suffering that we face and that we experience has been broken for good, Lord. And we wait for that day when it will be defeated for all eternity. Bless us this day as we go forth from here. May we have little tastes of that hope everywhere we turn, Lord. Surprise us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you are blessed and be encouraged in your faith life. Chapel happens every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 11 a.m. in the gymnasium or online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with us by following at TWChapel. Until next time, much love.